Last week we talked about conformism. I've started a short little series. I don't know if you figured that out or not. And I said that coming off of a book that I read when I was in college that has always stuck with me as we think about... It was a book that challenged our idea of worldliness and said there are a lot of ways that we think about what it means to be worldly and that what happens is a lot of times that we are straining out gnats. That is, we're looking at little ways and little things in our lives that that we say, I don't want to do that because that would be worldly or I don't want to have this in there or, you know, we look at these little things and the the thrust of it was that while we're straining out gnats, that's Jesus' language, Jesus says that you, woe to you Pharisees, you strain out gnats while you swallow camels. And I think that there are ways that we're straining out gnats, and, but we swallow camels. That, we, that there are some big ways that we think more like the world than we do like the Bible. Right? That, that we strain out some of these little things and we make a list of things that we don't do. But in big ways, we tend not to have a biblical worldview. There are big ways that we think and so choose more like the world than we do like the Bible, like Jesus is calling us to. And so we're going to talk about things like today, individualism, and next week on materialism, and the next week on activism, ways that we tend to think and shape and live our lives as much like the world as anything. And so this morning we are in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, talking about individualism. And what we have in this text is the opposite. And so we're going to address it largely by painting a biblical picture, a biblical worldview of what it is that God calls us to. So Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, hear then the word of God. And they, that is the disciples, the church in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a picture. The Word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we gather this morning as a community like this one. And we gather and even as we come now to your Word, we want to be more like this one. We, we want to be a church as you design and desire and empower us to be by your Spirit. Father, we would be more and more your people as we grow in our love for you and our knowledge of Christ and of your purposes for us. So would you meet us this morning, speak into our life, not just into each one of us as individuals, but speak into our corporate life and shape and build your church. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Individualism tends to be the thrust of often the world and our culture in particular here in the West. Uh, in America, we are built on a rugged individualism. There are a lot of ways that we think of our individual rights and how we pursue those. And so there's a lot of individualistic protection of those rights in myself, in my time, in my space. 
There are a lot of different ways that our culture pushes us and tells us to live this way. Uh, more and more as technology is one of those things as you look at technology and its benefits and, its, uh, and the negative sides of it. And sometimes it is hard to sort that out. The technology is, is an, it helps us in a thousand ways. But sometimes as we swallow the benefits of it, we don't recognize the, the downsides and the ways that technology can separate us. Uh, answering machines and texting and uh, garage door openers and these kind of things. Sometimes I think in our neighborhood as we drive in and open the garage door and drive your car in and close your garage door and then when you leave you do the same thing and rarely do we bump into our neighbors and often it doesn't bother us. The problem is when this kind of stuff, when the way our culture is being shaped and going forward and the way our culture thinks and the way the world thinks bleeds into the life of the church. And sometimes I think we do Sunday morning like we do the garage door opener where we kind of open the door and we slide in and we do our thing. We're with people, but we're alone. And we slide back out and close the door until next week when we do it again. There are some symptoms of individualism, symptoms of it, I think, in the life of the church that I wanted to throw out, the things that I I think sometimes are the ways that we absorb and think like the world in in this whole area. Anonymity. There's a lot of times where folks take church, and as we come to church, and we, they're, they're, are sometimes seasons, and sometimes there's a whole lifestyle of anonymity. We want to come to church, we want to have a church, but we want to hang on the fringes of the church. We want to stay in obscurity, we want to stay out of the spotlight, we don't really want to be noticed, we don't really want to be touched upon, we want to be able to come but, but to stay on the fringe. Anonymity means that relationships then are a low priority, I'm not seeking ways to get to know people in some ways, I'm trying to stay out of the limelight. We don't get involved in the life of the church. We don't necessarily participate in all the other aspects outside of Sunday morning. We don't really seek to get connected with people. We want to stay in the shadows. So sometimes we pursue this anonymity and sometimes we defend a fierce individualism and independence. Right? Our country is big on independence. We declare our independence. We love to live out our independence. We have so much in our country that we can actually, in large degrees, pull it off. Because we have so much. But it bleeds over into our spiritual lives. Sometimes we not only have our self-sufficiency, I've got my needs covered, I can handle it. But it bleeds over into our spiritual lives and we start to believe in a spiritual self-sufficiency. That I can do it. Me and Jesus, we can do it. I can shepherd my own soul. I can pursue and nurture my own growth. I really don't need that connectivity. I can do it myself. I can fix my own marriage. I can solve my own problems. I can conquer my own sin. I can educate my own mind. I can can do these things. I really don't need or want help. Sometimes we hide in anonymity. We protect our independence. We sometimes avoid commitment. We're busy doing our own thing, so we don't want to get involved in the work of the church. We're anonymity. We don't want to necessarily get involved in the life of the church. In avoidance of commitment, we tend to avoid getting involved in the work of the church. Because getting involved in the work of the church would require personal or family sacrifice. I want to keep my options open, and I've got so much going on in my lifestyle that I need to avoid 
too big of a level of commitment and sometimes commitment at all. So we can hang on the fridge and do my own thing and not get too tied up with my time and my resources so that we can do our own thing. And then there's an overall consumeristic posture in our culture, a consumerism that that we're more postured to receive than to give. And often we approach, as we approach Walmart, or we approach the buffet table, or we approach, we sometimes can approach church with this idea that we're there to see what it has to offer me, and where I can get the most for the least. The central concern of consumerism is what do I get out of it? We often hear that, I, you know, it's one of those things that you hear from people as they participate in this or that, and sometimes even in worship itself, and their, their response is, I didn't, well, I didn't get anything out of it. As if that's the posture toward worship. Do we come to worship to get? Is worship about, do I get worship or do I come? Is worship something I give? Is, is ministry something I give? The body of Christ exists to meet my needs? Or does the body of Christ exist to serve some greater purpose? These are individualistic. I'm not saying here we actually have, I think, a pretty healthy body life at HPC. But there are always needing to be reminded and to have a biblical picture of what it is that God is doing and what He is calling us out of and what He is calling us into and to make sure that we're not swallowing the camel at the same time that we're sorting out the gnats in our lives. And Acts chapter 2 gives us a great picture of Christian community, uh, a community of togetherness and interconnectedness that in many ways goes right in the face of this cultural anonymity and independence and avoidance of commitment and keeping options open and consumerism that sometimes drives and shapes our Western culture mentality. Acts chapter 2 comes along and shows, not just Acts chapter 2, but if you read your whole your whole Bible, really, Old Testament and New, it is so corporate, it is so connective, it is so mutual that it calls us out of ourselves. You know, we get this picture here in Acts chapter 2. The church is, this is the newborn church. You can't get any newer than this, right? This is Acts chapter 2. Jesus had been crucified and raised And they waited together. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until the coming of the Spirit, until uh, I come and empower you to be my church. And so they wait in the upper room, and the day comes when the Spirit is poured out. It's a gathering like this. There's a hundred, a couple hundred people, and, and, and the Spirit comes in visible image of flames. The place is shaken. People speak in tongues. There's this movement of the Spirit of God and His people, and the church is awakened and empowered to become something that the world has never seen. It starts in that upper room in Jerusalem and now covers the face of the earth. On that day, you will be my, my witnesses. Right? You, on that day, the power the, of, the spirit of power will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And God does it on that day. And the church is filled and shaken and awakened and empowered and turned into something that, starting here in Acts chapter 2, this is almost immediately following that Peter gives a sermon on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 people are converted. And so the church then begins to gather. And it does two things. It gathers, it's now in the thousands, it's ten times as big as our church, 3,000 in one day. It's first, in a sense, mega church. And so it tells us that they met house to house. Now, their houses weren't very big. 
And so meeting house to house means they broke it down. The bigger your church gets, the smaller it needs to get. Right? The, the more people on a Sunday morning, the more people in your worship, then the more necessary it is to meet in smaller groups in other places. In other words, to, to be able to be the church and to connect as people. So we get this picture, it's a local church. This is the Jerusalem church. It's a local church. Gathered, and they're told that they gathered often, and they de- devoted themselves to some core spiritual practices. Right? That's what's going on here. They would get together because there were some core spiritual, devotional practices that they engaged in together as a group. Right? Four of them are listed there in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. That breaking of bread, there's, there's often a debate. Is that breaking of bread as they broke bread house to house? Is that that they got together for church dinners? Or is that that they were having communion and sharing the Lord's Supper together? And the answer, I think, to that is yes. That, that it, and especially in those early days, it was hard to sort those things out. That often communion was part of their gathering for a meal. And as part of that meal, they shared communion as often as you do this, as often as you meet and are together. They would share it. And so there's this communion. They're praying together, sharing communion, and engaging in worship. These are the things, we're told, that dominated the life of God's people. They dominated the church. This is what the church did. This is what, this is what they were devoted to. This is what they were committed to. They were committed to learning and sitting under the apostles' teaching. They were committed to a life of fellowship together. They were committed to worshiping together and sharing a communion. And they were committed to praying together. Sometimes we call these things, this list here, the means of grace. It's an old term. It's a reformed term that we use a lot. A lot of churches use it. It's a, this isn't a, no one says this is an exhaustive list. It's not the only means of grace. But, but we do apply that term and say these four things that the church was devoted to and committed to and they did, they were de- devoted to them because they were the means of God's grace. In other words, God gave them to the church. God established them. It was, they were God's idea. This isn't like the church got together and decided, well, here's some things that we could think about doing, and they made a list. These are the things that God, they're the channels, the ordinary channels that God established and gave to the church to grow his people spiritually. Say, if, I wanna, if you want to grow spiritually, if you're wondering, if, if you're not growing spiritually, if your spiritual life isn't deepening, if you don't feel like you know Christ more today than you did last week, and the first question in, in, in pastoral counseling would be, do you engage in the means of grace? God has established channels through which he pours out his spirit, through which we meet with him and come to him and get to know with him, through which we have fellowship with him. We pursue him in his word, the apostles' teaching. We pursue him in the fellowship of the life of the church. We pursue him as we share worship together and break bread together in the sacraments. We pursue Him in a prayer life. And God says when you do those things, and you're not just doing them and checking them off a list, but you're pursuing God in them, then He meets us there. God's grace and His divine influence and the outflow and the outpouring of His Spirit, the fullness of of His Spirit flow to us in these things. And so the church is devoted to them. 
Because God says, I'll meet you here in these things. Now, it's interesting to me in this first set that there are two pairs, really. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking and bread and prayers. And you can give some thought to whether those pairings have meanings. And I think that there is some uh, connection in those things. And I want to touch, it's interesting that the first two paired together are the Word of God, the apostles' teaching, and the breaking of bread, or, or the fellowship. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And I believe that those two are linked together because fellowship is where we live out the apostles' teaching. Right? In the fellowship, we're going to talk about what that means, and that's what this whole morning is about. That we, it's in the fellowship that we live out the Word of God. And so you can't have fellowship if you don't have the Word of God being spoken into the fellowship, spoken into the life of the church. You cannot be devoted to God's Word and not devoted to fellowship because it's the only place it can be fully applied and lived out, experienced in its fullness. So I wanted to touch on, as I, as I press into this this morning, is just on the one element there, which is fellowship. They're devoted to these core practices of spiritual life and spiritual growth. And fellowship is right here at the center of it, linked to the Word of God, is this idea of Christian fellowship. It's a word that we use a lot. It's a word that we throw around in Christian communities. You hear people all the time saying, we, we had time of fellowship, you know, we got together for some fellowship and we do this. And we throw the word around pretty easy. And usually what we mean by it, not always, but usually what we mean by it is that we had a, t- a social time. We got together and we socialized. We got together and we had some fun, some Christian fun, some clean fun. You know, we got together and, and, and had a meal together. Church dinners, Sunday morning in the fellowship. There's a time of fellowship after church. I say, maybe. (laughs) I hope there's some real fellowship going on out there. I hope there's some real fellowship going on in our small groups, in our our, um, church dinners and other times and ways that we get together. But very often it's not. Because it is not simply entertaining and socializing. Biblical fellowship is a richer and deeper understanding, a richer and deeper idea. The word that is translated here, if you don't know the word that translated fellowship in your Bible, it's the point three in your outline. I don't know if you found it or you're following it. I'm at three. And you're like, thank goodness, he's already at three. But <clears throat> there are five. So three, though, is koinonia. And koinonia is the Greek word that we translate as fellowship. There are a few of the words that we throw around in, in the Greek. You know, koinonia, ekklesia, these kind of things. Koinonia is the Greek word for fellowship, and it's a rich word, and it's, and it's a much bigger word than socializing. It doesn't mean any time Christians are together and have fun. That's not what it means. It's just Christians getting together. Fellowship is, is, is actually a rich idea. It, it carries weight. It has to be un, unpacked. There's something in it. It's the sharing of life together. And that's a little fuller, if you see what I mean. If you share life together, that's more than just hanging out and talking about last week's football game or talking about what we're doing this week and what remodeling we're doing and what's the latest thing our children did. You know, those things are all, I think, important to the life of a community, but they're not Christian fellowship as it's biblically meant to be. It's a sharing of life together. It's a sharing of material and spiritual and emotional life together. It's being engaged in and involved in, invested in each other's lives. 
That's harder. That's deeper. That's richer. That's fuller. To get at the meaning of the word, because it's often used just like it is here, as it's, it's saying this is what they did when they got together, as, as fellowship, as, as the aspect of a shared life together as a community. The word is used in other places, and the way it's used in other places sometimes gives us an idea as we bring it back down to what does it mean for us to be a fellowship, to be a real fellowship. Well, look in your, under number three there, under koinonia, I have 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. It says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You may look at that verse and say, it doesn't say fellowship at all. That's right. They actually translate fellowship differently in this verse than we translate it in Acts 2.42. Why? Because because of the depth and the richness of the meaning of the word. So where is the word in there? It's in there twice, and it's being translated as the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? Right? The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? Is it not a fellowship with the blood of Christ? Is it not a fellowship with the body of Christ? And that give it, I mean, it gives us two things. A, it gives us a richer meaning of communion. That when we take the cup and we take the bread, he's saying it is a, a fellowship with Christ in that. It's a, it's, a, it's a participating in the blood of Christ. That is the life of the power of Christ in his blood. The life-giving power of Christ. He says, is it not a participation? And, and so when we come to that word fellowship back in Acts chapter 42, read it is, they got together and they sat on, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and they were devoted to a participation in each other's lives. Or look at 2 Corinthians 8, 3 and 4. They gave according to their means, as I can testify. Paul's talking about the Jerusalem, uh, the Macedonian church giving to the needs of, uh, I believe it's a Jerusalem church at a time of, of need. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. In fact, they begged us earnestly for the favor of koinonia in the relief of the saints. Right? It's translated of, of taking part in. You see then the, the depth of the word. It's, it's actual participation. In this case, they wanted, to, they wanted to give. They wanted to, it says, they wanted to give. And not only give, but give sacrificially beyond their means. And it says they gave Willingly of their own accord, not being forced, and they gave earnestly. So there's this rich picture of koinonia. They were begging for the privilege of getting involved in the needs of the lives of other Christians. They wanted to participate in those needs. They wanted to be involved in those needs. They wanted to be part of the solution of the needs. They wanted to get their hands dirty and they, they, re, they emptied their pockets and their time and their, you see where it is, and they did it willingly and they did it sacrificially. They, they koinoniaed with it. It wasn't even their home church. There's a church in a neighboring town, but they wanted to participate with God's people. So Romans 1.11, Paul is writing to the church in Rome and he's talking about, the word isn't in this sentence, koinonia is not in this sentence. But, but what is in this sentence is a picture of the way Paul saw fellowship as he went to the church in Rome. He says, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 
And that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Isn't that a little bit more than socializing? A little bit more than, he says, I want to come to you because I want to invest in your spiritual life. I want to invest in your well-being. I want to invest in encouraging you. And not only so, but I want to be encouraged by you. You know, I need you. I need, I need to come and spend some time with you so that you can love on me. And we can be mutually encouraged in Christ. I want to bless you. I want to strengthen you. Paul was devoted to fellowship. And we see it all right here in this verse, don't we? In these verses here in Acts chapter 2. All that I've been talking about, this participation and this taking part in this, getting involved in the lives of other believers. And that's exactly what's going on here in this newborn church in Jerusalem. This is, you know, the freshest outpouring of the Spirit as the church gathers together. And the, and the gifts are active in the life of this church like in no other time in history. In verse 44, we're told, And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They got together. They got together regularly. right? They were devoted to being together. In fact, everything that they were doing, the apostles' teaching and prayer and the Lord's Supper and the fellowship, all are things you, you can only do when you're together with other believers. Right? Well, that's not true. You can study God's Word by yourself. You can do. But what they're saying here is that these are things they were devoted to corporately. They did this together. They got together with other, another, other believers to do these four things. They were all together. This is the essence of the church. Gathering. Gathering. In fact, the word, if you don't know another, I'll teach you another Greek word today. You should know these two. The word that's translated is fellowship. is koinonia. The word that's translated is church. Every single time in the New Testament where you see the word church, it's translating the Greek word ecclesia. And it's a Greek word that if, if you translate it directly, simply means gathering. It means assembly. The church is the assembly of God's people. That's all it is. So they're, at the very essence of the nature of the church is this togetherness, this gatheredness. I'm writing to the church. I'm writing to the gathered People of God in Chattanooga. I'm writing to the church in Hickson. It is of the very essence of who we are. That we gather. That we are together. In verse 44 he goes on to say that they had all things in common. They shared everything. They didn't just socialize. They didn't just chat each other up. But they, they got involved in each other's lives. In verse 45, it got to the point where they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Can you imagine? First thing you need to say is, and understand, this is not communism. Right? Communism is, is the forced government redistribution of wealth. What you have here is the willing, personal investment in other people's lives. It's the people of God willingly and earnestly desiring to meet the needs of other believers. That they know what the needs are. That the church is aware of the needs in their midst. And that the church is, is invested is in fellowship. Involved in and participating in those needs in real and practical ways. Let me just run through that that involvement then is relational. It's practical and it's spiritual. That the fellowship is holistic. 
right? It is relational. The Bible tells us rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Are you connected with anybody in the life of the church where you are able to rejoice with them when they rejoice? That you're involved in it. That your joy, that your joy level actually rises when theirs does. Or, or that your weeping level, your grieving level actually kicks in when they hurt, you hurt. Are you connected? Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Bear one another's burdens. Pray for one another. Serve one another. That's fellowship. It's, it's relational involvement. It's practical, giving and taking, that you're willing to give and you're willing to ask for help. And both sides are important. See, some of us are willing to give and we'll give and we'll give, but when it's our turn, we, we'll, we will not ask. That goes to that fierce... Uh, independence. We won't ask for help. We won't tell anyone that something's going on. We won't tell anyone that we have a need. We'll, we'll wait for them to figure it out. You know, if they don't figure it out, then we're mad they didn't figure it out. You know, we, but we won't ask for help. We won't tell. And sometimes we just don't want help. And on the other side, sometimes we want help and we want help and we want help. We're not as invested on the giving side. It's a give and it's a take. It's, it's a mutual involvement. Paul says that we may mutually be encouraged by each other. There are tons of ways that this goes on in the life of our church. But there's a spiritual involvement, and that's what's highlighted in this text is both of these, because they're devoted to all these core spiritual disciplines, and yet they're also invested in each other's lives and meeting each other's needs. So there's this, they're all relationally connected, obviously. They know each other. They know what the needs are. They're spiritually interconnected. They're worshiping together and studying the Scripture together and praying together. And they're practically involved. They're literally selling possessions so that they've got extra money to make sure that the guy down the pew doesn't go hungry and can pay his light bill. Right? They're, 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 they're invested in each other. Koinonia, to, to be devoted to the fellowship he says, is one of the elements. To be devoted to koinonia means there has to be a commitment to care for the needs, relational, spiritual, and practical, of other believers. Sometimes not even in our own church. The church in Haiti. The church in New Orleans. You know, the church, wherever it is, it is suffering and indeed, the church in Uganda, amazing presentation from Casa Hogar in Mexico this morning and from Uganda uh, and, and the ministry that is going on there, amazing presentation of the needs and of the church, fellowshipping with the church in Uganda to meet um, needs and to see people come to Christ. Caring is an expression of spiritual life cannot read the pages of the New Testament and not see that where there is spiritual life in God's people, there is this care about the needs of others. Paul says, do not look out only for your own interests, but look out also for the interests of others. I think that's the heart of koinonia. That's the heart of the fellowship that we should be devoted to in each other's needs. The church is the body of Christ. He manifests himself in the life of the church. We're told that some of us are hands and some of us are feet. We're the hands and feet of Christ in each other's lives. As he meets, he says, one of the ways that we meet him is when we, when we see Christ in someone else caring for me, loving me, encouraging me, 
coming after me. C.S. Lewis says that he works in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other. Right? It can be messy, I'll tell you that. The church life is messy. You try to meet needs and somebody gets missed. And you, you get involved here and something gets overlooked there. And, and then again, we're just messy people. Sometimes we've had bad experiences in the life of the church. And it, it, there's no doubt that the, it's the body of Christ. And one say it's the best of times is the body of Christ. And it's the worst of times. Just as any family is. It's the, it's the greatest joys, but because it's so close, it can be the hardest most difficult relationships at time too. But that's because of the nature of the closeness. This is a fellowship that's not based on age or gender or race or economics or politics or social standing or any other thing. The very act of believing in Christ places you into a fellowship, interconnects you with other believers. The church, not only in this place, but across time and across the world. He's placed you into a fellowship, into a shared life. That just shatters our individualism. Shatters our fierce independence and anonymity and avoidance of commitment and our consumerism. And it calls us out of ourselves into the lives of other people. And when we live it out, when this kind of fellowship is is embodied in the lives of God's people, when we live it out, the Word of God becomes incarnate. Do we see that? So I say we can't We can't be devoted to the Word of God and not to the fellowship because it's here that that Word of God becomes incarnate and lived out. Gospel, you know, forgiveness and grace and bearing of each other's burdens and forgiving of each other's sins and meeting of each other's needs and and the pursuing together, it all gets worked out in the life of the community. The Word of God becomes incarnate and, and when it does, the love of God becomes visible the world. And that's what happens in this text, isn't it? Verses 46 and 47, it says, day by day, they were attending the temple together. They, they came together for worship. At that time, they were still going to temple. But they met at the temple and they worshiped. And they said they broke bread with glad and generous hearts and they were praising God. And as they were doing that, breaking bread, all those things again, they worshiped together and they prayed together and they came together. And as they did, They gained favor with all the people. That is, those outside the church, with the community, with the Hickson community. And as they did, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They're a glad and generous community, full of koinonia and worship. They're finding favor with the community around them. And God was using the richness of their fellowship the incarnation of His Word and His grace to show the love of Christ to the world and to bring people to Himself. The community was tasting the power of God at work in the community. And so biblical community is missional. It always has this kingdom DNA. It's always conscious that Jesus is building His kingdom, that Jesus is building His church, that 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 it goes to the ends of the earth. It starts in Jerusalem and Judea, but it's, it goes to the ends of the earth, to Uganda and to Acapulco and to the ends. And we have fellowship with God's people there. And as they see it, the community is one to Christ. And as the church in America fellowships with this church in Uganda, they see people coming to Christ. As we invest in the needs there, 
people are literally by the hundreds and the thousands being one to Christ. God bringing God is bringing people to us because koinonia is generous, it's inclusive, it's expansive, it brings people in, it draws the world. Individualism says, let's protect what we have. But koinonia, biblical fellowship, is, is, is missional and it draws others into its life. It draws others into the relationships, into the blessing. It shares the blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. My friends, we live in a cynical world. Talk is cheap. And the world knows it. The world around us is looking at the church saying, where is the church? There's needs all around us. Where is the church? You say this, you say that, you claim this. You look down on us because of this. You criticize us for this. Where's the church? Where are we? And we start by incarnating it here. They want to see the truth lived out. The very act of believing has placed us in a fellowship into a shared life as God's people. And may God make us a glad and generous community full of koinonia and worship because only then is the Word of God incarnate. And only then does the love of God become visible, not only in our midst, but they will see our good deeds. They will glorify our God who is in heaven. And they will come to see Jesus.